Well, good morning. It is such a joy to be with you all. Uh, you have been a blessing to me and to my family. I'm so encouraged by uh, your worship and your worship of Christ, as well as your enthusiasm and zeal and love for the Lord. It is just evident. Uh, whenever uh, you are teaching or preaching the word to people who love the word, it is an uplifting experience. And so I am thankful to the Lord for you. Thank you for how you have shown love to not only me, but my entire family. It's a blessing, as we'll talk about soon enough in this message. One of the aspects of a life revolving around the gospel is our relationships and our corporate life together. And my family wasn't just able to hear me say that, they were able to see it in you already. And so that has been a blessing as a parent, a blessing as a preacher and a pastor. And so I am so thankful to the Lord for you. I'm also thankful that you send many students to the Master's University, and they really are the best students. They really are. And I'm not just saying that because I'm here. It is true. Their, their knowledge of Scripture is evident. Their love for Scripture is evident. They ask great questions, questions that not only help them grow intellectually in the theology of Scripture, but also questions that demonstrate they want this to be in their life. Uh, they even start clubs on campus that revolve around Scripture and uplift Christ. It is just really neat to see. So thank you for your labor of love in them and sending them our way and blessing us in those ways, and they love this church. That's also very evident. You know, they, they say, Dr. Chow, you gotta, you gotta come preach at Compass. And I said, well, you know, we'll, we'll see. You know, I gotta get invited first, you know. <laughs> uh, and, and so thank you for the invitation, and they even, uh, this past week, were coming up to me, oh, we're so thrilled you're gonna be down there, and, and that just evidences how deep you have been in their lives and how much they love you, and that's just a healthy body. And, and I am praising the Lord for our time here with you. Well, with that in mind, shall we pray as we are about to go into the Word of God this morning? Lord, we thank you for this time together. And we thank you for your Word, how wise it is, how insightful it is. And it highlights the power and the majesty and the necessity of redemption, of your deliverance. You have crafted an entire story, an entire plan to demonstrate the crucial nature of redemption. And may that be in our hearts and our minds now. And even more, may our hearts and minds yearn to know what to do with this, to, to live this better, and, and to marvel both at the practical ways you give us to better be about the gospel, but at the same time, all the more to see how central the gospel is to your own heart, and therefore how central it must be to us. <clears throat> so there are so many ways that you can honor yourself at this time, O oh God. May the truth be honored, and thereby may you be honored, and your son be honored, and his work in salvation be honored. And we ask all this, not for ourselves, but for your glory, and in your name we pray, amen. We have just finished what some people might call the holiday season at this point in January. What we have completed is a complex of event after event, celebration after celebration, holiday after holiday. We had Thanksgiving, and then the day after Thanksgiving is Black Friday. Then there's Cyber Monday. Then there's Giving Tuesday. Then there's Christmas Eve and Christmas, and New Year's Eve and New Year's. 
It's a lot, and with all of this comes a lot of hustle and bustle. There's a lot of shopping and cooking and traffic and wrapping gifts and giving gifts and receiving gifts and festivities and activities, and then comes resolutions. It is no wonder that at this point of the month, we want a holiday from the holidays. They're just really dominating, and with that, holidays, just categorically, holidays are very effective at highlighting certain ideas and making those ideas central to us. And this is really true in American culture. Our holidays highlight certain aspects of our culture and make all of our culture revolve around it. What do you learn about American culture from our holidays? Well, and I'm speaking broadly here, I'm speaking stereotypically, we eat a lot, and then we shop a lot, and then we get presents, and then we make resolutions against everything we just did. (laughs) That is a significant portion of American culture, and I am speaking broadly and stereotypically and generically here, and it's for that very reason that we have to fight so hard in the holiday season to keep Christ central. We know that these holidays are highlighting those certain cultural values and forcing them on us, and so we have to resist that. It is also for that same reason that when we go overseas and people say, oh, you're an American. Yes, I am. Oh, you know, my perception of Americans is that you eat a lot and you shop a lot and and then you get presents. That's That's what I think about Americans. And you say, Well, that's not true. That's not all of us. And then they say, and then you make resolutions against everything that you just said, like you just did. Well, that that kind of sums up American culture. And in that way, again, holidays are effective. They bring out what we value, and they really do make those things central. They, They dominate our culture. Have you noticed that holidays set the entire tone for the marketing culture we have in America? Our calendar cycle is based on holidays, and within that, after Halloween is completed, have you noticed they immediately put out Thanksgiving and Christmas stuff? It's, it's, it's not even the end of November yet, and they're already trying to get you to celebrate. Some of you don't mind, but others of us are kind of perplexed at what is going on. It controls our marketing cycle. Holidays even control our economic cycle. People gauge the national health of the economy based on Black Friday sales, based on Black Friday sales. You know how dominant then holidays can be. Holidays are powerful because what they are designed to do is they bring forth a certain value and they make that central. They make that central in people's lives and culture. And with that in mind then, when the Bible talks about a holiday, it is teaching us about what you should value, what should be central to you, and how to make that central to us. And as holidays and all that they do is still relatively fresh in our mind, what I want to do is bring us to a biblical text about a holiday, and that holiday is Passover. Passover. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. And I know we know the general gist and idea of the holiday of Passover. But when you start reading it line by line, when you start reading it verse by verse, we can easily become confused and overwhelmed. We say, look at all these different verses here. What am I supposed to do with this? Why is this here? It's just very confusing. 
At this point, remember the power of a holiday. Remember the power of a holiday. It highlights what you should understand and explains to you how to make that central in your life. And that is exactly what is happening in Exodus 12. God is highlighting what is on his heart, what should be on our heart, what is central about redemption, and how to then make that central in our lives. In other words, he is explaining and expressing and even establishing in Exodus chapter 12 how to live a life that revolves around redemption. How to live a life that revolves around redemption. And as we start a new year, I know that we want a life that is consumed with Christ, that loves him and loves what he has done for us in the gospel and wants to exalt the gospel. How do we do that? Well, God made a holiday. God made a holiday to establish how that would work for Israel. And through that, we can see what it highlights and how to make that central in our lives. Well, in order to do this, we're gonna need some context, and we're gonna need context in a twofold way. A twofold way. The first of it is this that we need to understand the role of the law. We need to understand the role of the law. And second, within this, then we need to understand how Exodus 12 fits in to the entire context and flow of the book of Exodus. Again, a twofold context. One is the role of the law, and second is the context of Exodus 12 itself in the book. And so in light of this, let's talk about the role of the law. While to be sure Israel was under the law and they had to do it, we as believers, according to Galatians 5 and Romans 6, we are not under the law. So what are we supposed to do with all these rules? And there are two extreme and incorrect understandings of how to respond to scripture of this nature. One says we gotta do every single thing in the law anyways. Every jot and tittle, the letter of the law, all of it. And there is an opposite reaction that says this. Well, forget it. We're not under the law, so get rid of it. It makes for shorter Bible reading, and then that way for sure you can read your Bible in a year. <laughs> well, what are we really supposed to do if it's not one extreme or the other? And it goes back to understanding how the law was designed how the law was designed. What did God want us to do with the law? How did he intend it to work? And God introduces the very design and purpose of the law to his people in Exodus chapter 15. In Exodus 15, he does an object lesson to help Israel understand it. And the object lesson is this. There's some water. It is bitter. Israel takes a drink, realizes they cannot drink from this water. So God, he points. He points to a tree. He points to a tree, and Israel takes that tree, puts it in the water, and they can drink from it. And the word for point, when God pointed to a tree, is the word Torah, from which we get our word Torah, which means the law which means instruction, which means pointing, and that helps you to already know what the law does. The law doesn't save you. The law was never designed to save you. It was designed to point you to that which does save you. Now, if you're a little bit confused about the distinction here and wondering about the difference, let me give you some illustrations. Now, in the back, at the exit doors, you will notice that there is an exit sign. I kind of feel like a flight attendant here. And there on the exit signs, they point you 
to the exit. They are not the exit itself, they point you to the exit. Now, Lord forbid that there was ever an incident where we needed to move quickly out of the building and through those exit doors. The signs are useful because they tell you, they point you to the point of deliverance, to the point where you can escape a dangerous situation. But no one is going to be delivered from a burning building by gazing deeply and lovingly into an exit sign. That's not what it's for. It has a purpose, but it doesn't save you. It just points to what does. Likewise, on a boat, God forbid that a boat was ever sinking, you are not going to be saved by clinging to the sign that says, life preserver here. That's not what's going to save you. What's going to save you is if you read the sign and learn from it what you should do, which is to go get the life preserver itself. That's what will preserve you. You see, the law was never meant to save. It was never meant to save. It was meant to teach you so that you would be pointed to that which does save, that which does save. And so, yes, Israel was under the law, but there was a reason for it. They had to do it so that they would point themselves and the whole watching world to that which does save them. And yes, we are not under the law itself, but it still has a function. It still has a function. It's the function is what it was always designed to do, to instruct, to point us, to teach us about the truths of the gospel. That is what is going on in the law. And it is just as Romans 15, 4 says, these things are written for our instruction for our instruction. And in that way, when we read Exodus 12, which has a bunch of rules, the application is not just do the same thing. That's not the application intended. The application intended for this time by God, by design is learn from all these things. Learn from all these things. There's a lot God was teaching his people as he's pointing them to the nature of redemption and they needed to learn those things well. Well, what specifically are they to learn? What does the passage of Exodus 12 exactly instruct us about? Well, that moves us from the first question to the second question. And the second question is about what is the context of Exodus 12? What is this actually trying to point us to? Well, in the book of Exodus, which follows the book of Genesis, in Genesis itself, God begins his plan of redemption. He establishes the people of Israel and puts together the foundational building blocks of his entire plan, a plan that revolves around land and seed and blessing, a plan that involves faith, like the faith of Abraham, a plan that shows that God is present and he fights for his people and he turns evil to good. These are some major critical ideas, but they all come together as God, in the book of Exodus, he will launch his people internationally. He will launch his people internationally. That is what is happening in the book of Exodus. And with that international launch, he not only launches a nation, so all the world is seeing these people, but with that, he is launching himself in front of all of these people that Israel would be around. And not only does God launch himself and present himself and declare himself to the world, he declares his agenda his agenda through Israel and for Israel and really for the world. So what is this agenda that God has as he's launching the people and launching his purpose and launching himself? One word, one word that 
pulls everything in Genesis together, gives it focus, and launches it to the whole watching world, redemption. Redemption. Another word you could substitute for that is deliverance. Deliverance. The entire book of Exodus is God's dramatic presentation of deliverance. This is his agenda. This is his agenda, and he is the God of deliverance. And every part of the book testifies to this. You have it in the beginning of the book as God raises up the leader for deliverance in Moses, and you have it in the subsequent parts of the book which talk about faith in God as he does this deliverance. But more than anything else, what Exodus presents is the God of deliverance the God of deliverance. We are familiar with Exodus chapter three. Moses asks the question, what is your name? What is your name? And Moses there is not asking, uh, can you spell it? Is it with one H or what, what, how do you say Yahweh again? I mean, that, that is not Moses' question. He's not wondering how do you pronounce or what is your name exactly. The phrase in Hebrew means, what makes you God? What makes you God? What makes God, God? That's a very profound question if you stop and think about it. What makes God, God? And what is God's answer, which is equally, if not more profound, I am who I am. That is his answer. I am who I am. In other words, God is saying, God is God. That's the most profound definition because what it shows is you human being, you cannot pull God down and dissect him and pull him apart and try to say, oh, if you just put all these pieces together, you'll get God. You can't do that because God is so supreme and so other and so categorically separate, you cannot bring him down to your level. God is God. He is his own definition and you with your limited human ideas and limited limited human language and limited human terminology, you cannot confine God. God is his own definition. You have no right to pull him down and break him apart. You cannot define God on your terms. And furthermore, God says with I am who I am, no man and no creature could ever ascend as high as God and analyze him as a peer. He is God, period subject to no definition other than himself, and no one else has the right to define him but him. He is absolutely supreme. Put it in contrast, the ancient Near Eastern gods, they would say, well, I'm the God of heaven, I'm the God of earth, I'm the God of the sky, I'm the God of the sea, I'm the God of the wheat fields, I'm the God of the river, and God says, I'm God. I'm God, period. I am who I am. He is unrestricted, he is unlimited, and that means he has the greatest salvation. Why? Because he's the greatest one, period. That's why. And so God reveals himself as supreme and thereby the supreme savior and thereby having a supreme salvation. And God demonstrates that throughout the book of Exodus. Exodus becomes a long saga of God over and over and over showcasing I am who I am and thereby I am this ultimate, definitive, climactic saving God. We see it, for example, in the 10 plagues, which not only decimate the land of Egypt, but also prove and demonstrate all the Egyptian gods, they're false. They're false. You say, how does this work? Well, let me give you one simple example. We remember the first plague. God turns the Nile into 
Blood. We know that. But we should ask the question at this point, why blood? Why not turn the river into jello? Red jello. Disgusting jello. So you can't eat it. He could do that. He has the power to. Or even better, why not split the water in two? He's going to do that two more times later on. This would make a third. That's a biblical number. Do it. Split it. You're good at it. Why blood? Why blood? Because according to Egyptian mythology, and you can't make this stuff up, the god of the Nile is Happy. That's his name, Happy. Now, to be fair, it's H-A-P-I, not H-A-P-P-Y. Why turn the water into blood? Simple. God shows Egypt, I killed Happy. Happy's dead. Happy died. <laughs> and God proves, there is no God but Yahweh. I am the supreme God. There is no competitor, there is no competition, there is no rival. I save because there is no other. And I love these people, Israel, and therefore I will deliver them and no one will stand in my way. The most dramatic way that God shows this is how he humbles Pharaoh. How he humbles Pharaoh. Pharaoh thought he was a God and God will humble him. God's opening declaration to Pharaoh is, let my people go. We know that part, but listen to the second part. So that they would serve me in the wilderness. Did you hear that word serve? It's actually the word slave. It's actually the word slave. Pharaoh realized what God was saying is, Pharaoh, you think you're the master in Israel, you're a slave? I hate to break it to you. Actually, he doesn't. I will break it to you. They're not your slaves, they're mine. You're not the master, I'm the master. You're not the Lord, I'm the Lord. You're not the sovereign, I'm the sovereign. And I want you to say those words so you admit and confess you are nothing and I am everything. That is what God is doing. And Pharaoh understands this. It is for this very reason. Throughout the 10 plagues, Pharaoh will never say those words. He will never, he refuses to utter the words, go serve your God. He never says that because he doesn't want to confess and admit he lost and God won. He's nothing and God is everything. But then the 10th plague hits. The plague celebrated by Passover and talked about in the passage we are in. And Pharaoh is broken. And at the end of it, he says, go serve your God. What does Pharaoh say? I am nothing. I'm subjected to the Lord of this universe. Yahweh, the God of Israel, he is everything. He is the true sovereign. He is the true master. He is Lord of all. That is the proof that God is great, and not only great, but the greatest, and not only the greatest, but the greatest savior. And we know that that is accomplished by the 10th plague. It is accomplished in the 10th plague, celebrated by Passover, and that already begins to show you the nature of what is going on in Exodus 12. God in the 10th plague unleashes all that deliverance is. He unleashes all the culmination of redemption and salvation for people to see and understand. And because Israel's role as God is launching them to the world is to showcase that to the world, God wants that to be central for them so that they would tell others and show that to themselves and others. So what does God do? He sets up a holiday. 
Because what do holidays do? They highlight what's important and make them central. And so God says, I'm gonna make a holiday so that Israel, you will learn you will understand how critical redemption is and that it will be such a part of your existence in life, everyone will know how critical it is. Now, we have the same job, a parallel job as Israel. We are to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us from darkness to light. And so we can learn from this too about how critical the gospel is, how critical God's ultimate and final work of redemption in the gospel is, and from that, we can also learn how to make that central in our lives. And I wanna do this in three ways, three ways. There are, Passover teaches us three lessons about how central the gospel is, and therefore how to make it central in our lives. Three ways, and here are the three ways quickly. One, the gospel should dictate your time. Two, the gospel should define your relationships. And third, the truths of the gospel should be deep in us. Should dictate your time, it should define your relationships, and it should be deep in us. It should be deep in us. That is what is going on here. So with that in mind, let's talk about the first point. Let's talk about the first point, how it dictates our time. How it dictates our time. Now, in verses one and two, we see how the gospel dictates time. Here, we read in verse one, the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, in the land of Egypt. And you say, well, what's the big deal about that? Everything in scripture is a big deal. We don't skip over any part of it. It all has practical implications, and the implications here are clear. God prescribed everything he's about to prescribe. He gave all these instructions not as an afterthought. Not as an afterthought. It wasn't that, hey, the, the deliverance of the Exodus happened and God said, oh, by the way, since it turned out that way, you should do these kinds of things. It's a good idea now that I think about it. No, this was all carefully thought out before it ever happened. It was all carefully planned out. Every instruction means something because God said, I want you to experience the exodus. I want you to understand this deliverance a very specific way in a very particular manner so that from this point forward, you know the nature of deliverance. Everything in this text then is deliberate. Nothing of it is accidental or incidental. Everything is crafted with a purpose. God did not make this an afterthought. He did this intentionally to set up the entire experience and understanding of God's deliverance. And so therefore, because God crafted it so carefully, we better pay attention to it in all of its detail because it all matters, and that starts from verse two. That starts from verse two. God says, this is for you going to be a new month, the first month, and it will be the first month of the year. And you say, well, yeah, if it's the first month, then of course it's gonna be the first month of the year. What's the real difference between these two things? Is there really a difference? Well, there is. Again, the gospel dictates our time, and as we will see in these two phrases of verse two, it dictates our time in two ways. Two ways. Here's the first way that it dictates time. It's the point of origin. It's the point of origin in our time. Notice what God says. This month for you will be the first month. What does that imply? For Israel, and maybe certainly for Egypt, Passover, that month that it took place in, wasn't their first month of the year. Originally, it wasn't. 
They had a different month, which was the first month. But God says, from this point forward, you're gonna have to reorient how you think about your existence, how you think about your time. From this point forward, you're gonna have to redo your calendar so that this month that Passover happens in, this is the first month of your existence. Put it this way, just like July 4th is the beginning of America, Passover is the beginning of Israel. Passover is the beginning of Israel. And just like July 4th, we call it Independence Day. And independence is such a big part of our American culture, such to the fact that people, the first person who says liberty, our rights, our freedom in political discourse, they win because it's such a part of our culture. So what God is saying to Israel is, redemption is where you start. This is everything to you. Your whole calendar revolves around this. Put it this way, how did Israel begin? How did they even exist? It started with what? Redemption. It started with redemption. And if that's the starting point for how you exist, then that's the starting point for everything in your existence. That's God's point to Israel. This is how you began. It's your originating point. It's your point of origin. That means everything stems from this. There is nothing that starts, there is nothing that is more fundamental than this. This is everything to you because without it, you would be nothing. Without it, you would be nothing. And that's important. You might say, well, does this mean that we need to change our calendars and have a new new year and all this kind of stuff? No, we're not under the law. But what is God saying? You wouldn't exist apart from the gospel. You wouldn't exist if it wasn't for salvation. If it wasn't for what God did, you need to act like that. You need to think like that. It should always be your originating point. You wanna know how to think through time? Time begins with the gospel. Time begins in that way for our lives practically with the gospel. How do you begin your day? With the gospel. How do you think through your life? Well, what's the starting point of that? The gospel. How do you even talk about your life? Not just how you began life biologically, but when you truly had life. It's with the gospel. Because without the gospel, we don't have what is truly eternal life. Even with parenting, we want our kids to be good and we want our kids to do well and to be nice. You cannot have that apart from the gospel, it always begins with the gospel because all of existence in life begins with the gospel. And so God established a holiday to teach Israel, this is your starting point. This is your point of origin. You can't think of existence apart from this, therefore it determines all of your existence. And that's the logic we need to have about the gospel in our everyday life. It really is the point of origin. But it's not just the point of origin, it's the organizing point. It's the organizing point. You, we know that the gospel is so central, it dictates our time, and it dictates our time not just because it is the originating point, but it is also because of the organizing point. Notice the next part of this phrase, of verse two. This will be the first month of the year for you. With that, God reminds Israel, it's not just that this is the first month, so you now exist. It's your birthday, so you're all about this but it's the first month of the year. That means your whole calendar will revolve around this. All the time subsequent will be revolving around this. And we can understand that. We can understand that, especially given the season we are just in. 
December and January dominates our calendar. It dominates how we spend our money and how we save because we have to save for the holidays. And it dominates our presence and it dominates our marketing. And it even dominates how we plan for vacations because that's the prime time for vacations. It dominates even airline schedules because they price based on that. It dominates school schedules. It even dominates people's preaching calendars because they got to preach the nativity during December and January. Everything is dominated by this time. And God says, redemption should dominate your entire calendar because it's the first thing. Everything revolves around it. If you want to understand how our holidays dominate our calendar, it reminds me of a recent social media post on December 26th, the day after Christmas. And it said, okay, all you procrastinators, no excuses, get ready for Christmas. That's what's going on. Holidays dominate our time. And God says, and God made a holiday so that Israel's time would be dominated with the gospel. With the gospel. Now, again, we don't have to have exactly a holiday or create new holidays or reorient our calendar in that way, but we learn something from this. Is our time organized around the gospel? Is our time organized around the gospel? And you might say, man, that's convicting, I, I don't, uh, I'm, I feel kind of hopeless here. Can I encourage you that you might do this more than you think? You might do this more than you think. After all, you're here. You're here. Every Sunday, your week is revolving around the gospel. Your time is being organized by the gospel, whether you realize it or not. And if you have a Bible study or a small group, your time is being organized by the gospel. If you have family time and family devotions, your time is being organized by the gospel. Or if you want to have a more casual approach and bring up the gospel as much as you can every single time, again, your time is being organized by the gospel. And so on one hand, yes. Can we do better? Of course, we can always do better. But on the other hand, sometimes what we need to do is make the implicit explicit. We need to make the implicit explicit. When a coworker at work says to you, man, you just do a lot of church things, you don't just say, uh-huh, and that's it. No, you say, let me tell you why. Because the gospel, there's nothing more central and important than it. It's the life and death difference. It's what God is doing. It's what will be celebrated for eternity. It is good news. And so, of course, my life is going to revolve around it. It's so central, it dictates my time. And with our children, if they say, man, there's a lot of church stuff. That's all we do is church stuff. You say, yes. Because the gospel is so central and there is nothing more important and nothing more vital. The gospel is central. That's why God made a holiday to teach Israel. It's so central, it should dictate your time, both in the way that you think of origination as well as how you organize your time. The gospel is that central. We should learn that and we should do that. Well, Moses continues the instructions about Passover, the celebration, and he shows that the gospel doesn't just dictate our time. It defines our relationships. It defines our relationships. That's the second point, the second point. And we see that in verses three and four. We see that in verses three and four. It defines our relationships. And in verses three and four, what happens in the instructions is that God shows all these different relationships that have to be involved in the celebration of Passover, all these different kinds of interactions, and every 
part of community, interpersonally or personally. They just come together to celebrate Passover and what God shows is everything that you have in your social life. Everything you have in your social life, it's about redemption. It should be about redemption. That's what the holiday is instilling into Israel. That is what the holiday is instilling into Israel. And that's what it should instill in us because after all, we are the people of God as well. Now, how does it do this specifically? Well, for one, it does it on a corporate level. It shows our corporate gathering. When we're all together as God's people in our church or as a congregation, it should be about the gospel. Notice verse three. Moses says to Israel, speak to all the congregation of Israel. Here's a Bible trivia thing. The phrase congregation of Israel, that's the first time it ever appears in the Bible. That's the first time it ever appears in the Bible. But let's not just win Bible trivia. Let's know why it's the case. Because God is saying, Israel, you're not a congregation. You're not a place of worship. You're not a people who testify. You're not a people who gather together with a purpose until I do this act of redemption. The reason you're together, the reason I can call you a congregation of the people gathered is because you are all about and you exist because and therefore your purpose is in the gospel. Your purpose is in the gospel. That's why he calls them a congregation at the first time because he says what Passover is about is what you as a congregation are about. That's what you need to understand. And this applies for us as the church. We are called to be a witness of Christ. We are called to declare the excellencies of God in the gospel. Even the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table, is a demonstration of what God does in Christ through the gospel as we celebrate it until he comes. And so the gospel is central. How central is it? It should define our relationships. What relationship should it define? Well, for one, it should define our corporate relationships every time we're together. And we need to admit, sometimes we get distracted. We can become distracted with social issues, politics, relief, humanitarian aid, social justice, so-called, and various fads and causes. And that can cause us to divert our attention from what we do together as God's people. But what God said is, I made a holiday. I made a holiday to show you, Israel, and by extension, the people of God, what you should always be about. That's the gospel. When we are here, it should be absolutely abundant. We are declaring Christ and what he has accomplished in his saving work. That's what we do together. That is our purpose. That is our goal. That is our agenda. We should never be distracted from it. God made a holiday to make that clear. God made a holiday to make that clear. But it's not just corporate relationships. It's individual relationships. Notice what it says in verse three, continuing on. It says this, on the 10th day, each one of you should take. Did you hear that? Each one of you. You should take for each one. Each one of you should take. With that language of each one, we are talking about the individual. Now, someone might say, but, but that's actually talking about the heads of households taking a lamb for each of their families. Now, that is true, but we need to think through this. Why would God want each household to take it? So that everyone in the household would participate. That's what's going on there. And so God, with the language of each one of you, he is saying, no one else can do this for you. No one can take your place on this. No one can assume this responsibility. Each of you has to assume responsibility. This needs to be personal 
to each and every one of you. Redemption isn't just on the big corporate level, it's in every single person in the congregation. Redemption needs to be that personal to us. It defines us that way. And it is ironic that we can be pretty selfish and self-centered about so many things. We're self-centered about social media and jobs and money and reputation and possessions. We're even self-centered about food. We don't want to share our food with other people. And, and we're selfish about so many things except the one thing we're supposed to be personal about, and that is the gospel. And that is the gospel. So often people say, well, well someone else can deal with this for me. I got my, you know, my parents are believers, so I must be okay. I got a great family that loves Christ, so, you know, whatever. My spouse is a good, godly Christian, and I got an amazing pastor, so I don't have to care about it. What did God show Israel in this holiday? Every person's involved. Every person's involved. You can't just delegate this to someone else. You can't pass it on to someone else. You can't rely on someone else. You've got to take ownership. You've got to take ownership. Redemption isn't just for someone else and you get some fringe benefits. Redemption is for you. And you better take it personally. You better take it personally. God made a holiday to instill this in his people. The gospel is central in how it defines relationships and that's just not corporate, it's individual. It's individual and we need to realize it and take responsibility for it. But it's not just corporate or individual relative to relationships, even family. Notice the very, very end of verse three, that each family is to take a lamb for his father's house, for his own house. What does that language mean? It means, yeah, each family is to make sure that the extended family, everyone has a lamb, but within that extended family, each individual immediate family has a lamb. What does this show you? Each individual family, each immediate family should be about the gospel, no exceptions. No exceptions. This is what Israel would realize. Passover is a family activity. Passover isn't just about what Israel does on a big national scale. It's not just what I do personally. It's what we do together as a family. And thereby, by extension, deliverance is what we do as a family. We talk about that. We focus on it. It's our emphasis. And this is instructive for us. Sometimes when we think about parenting, we, we emphasize all kinds of things. We say, hey, kids, you got to get an A because A's are awesome and B's are bad. So A's are it. That's it. And sometimes we say, hey kids, every game is a Super Bowl, win it. And then we say, hey kids, be good or be punished. Those are your options. We want our kids to be good. We want them to be good at school. Sometimes we want them to excel at sports. But you know what God reminds us in a holiday? He says, I designed a holiday for Israel so they'd learn it's about redemption. The family should always be focusing and emphasizing, even in our parenting, redemption, the gospel, salvation. Likewise, when we talk with our spouse, we, we have all kinds of emphases. We talk about the job and, and money and vacation and planning and parenting and the home and the household. But what we should emphasize is the gospel. God said, I made a holiday so that Israel's family traditions, Israel's family mentality would always be, we're gonna talk about what God did for us in salvation. That's what he did, and we can learn from that. Now, some of you here might be saying, but chow, I'm single. I'm not in a family. I'm a bachelor to the rapture. 
What are you going to do with that? Verse 4. If there is a household that's too small because you're single or, or your home is just small, you don't have that many family members to, to be able to eat a lamb, you join with another household. What this teaches us is it's not just about defining relationships corporately, individually, or in our family. It's even defining friendships. It's even defining friendships, any interpersonal relationships. Because these are two homes gathered together. These are several families gathered together. It's not talking about the whole sphere and the whole corporate gathering of national Israel. It's talking about what's happening in that. And even those interactions are to be about the gospel. And within that, notice that everyone is to make sure that everyone will have a portion. Every individual will have a portion in the house. Why? Because we already said the gospel is about individuals. Every individual must take ownership. So even in our interpersonal connections, even in our interpersonal relationships, no one should be left behind. No one should be left out. Why? Because the gospel is ultimately for every individual to take hold of. Therefore, we need to encourage every individual toward that end. We don't want clicks. We don't want exclusivity. We want people to know the gospel no matter who they are. And so God, in these verses, he says, you know how important the gospel is? Let me show you in a holiday that everything in your social life, what you do as a nation, what you do as an individual, what you do as a family, what you do as friends, it all revolves around redemption. It all should be consumed with what God has done for us in his saving work. And that is how you make the gospel central in your life. Well, it's not just that the gospel is so central because it dictates our time and so it should dictate our time. It's not just so central that it must define our relationships and does so. It's that the truths of the gospel should be deep in us. That's the third point. The truths of the gospel should be deep in us. We've talked a lot about this holiday, how central it is, and how it should be central in our lives. But you might be wondering, well, what is the nature of this redemption? What is the nature of this salvation? What is it? What is its substance? Well, Passover is going to teach about it. But it's going to teach about it in a specific way. It's going to teach about it in a specific way to force Israel to learn it. The whole holiday exists so that Israel would experience the theology of what took place and master those truths, and this is important. Because sometimes when we say the word theology, people say, whatology? What are you talking about? I don't, I don't need to know that. That's for nerds. I'm not a nerd. <laughs> it's too hard. But God says, I made a holiday so that you would learn the truth. And it needs to be deep in you. It needs to be deep in you. This should be rich, and you should have it mastered in your heart and in your mind. And you say, well, what kind of truths are we talking here about salvation? What, what kind of truths should we really, really know? Well, verses 5 through 13 gives us those. And let me give you just a bullet point list of them. For one, there's a theology of sacrifice. There's a theology of sacrifice. Look at verse 5. You have a perfect lamb. That's talking about the perfection, the, the standard of sacrifice that it has to be perfect. And it's a lamb, a male lamb of one year. A male lamb of one year. Why? Because it's precious. It's precious. That would be the most valuable lamb. That would be the age of the lamb at its highest value. And therefore, take the most precious, take the most perfect sacrifice, and make it a sacrifice. That's why it has to be from the lambs or the goats, as it says in verse 5. You cannot sacrifice a skunk. 
It's not going to work. It's disgusting. Therefore, a sacrifice must be a sacrifice. You know this lamb will have to die. You know this lamb will take your place. And so there is a theology and a standard of sacrifice. God requires, you want to know what will satisfy him? It has to be a sacrifice that is perfect, a sacrifice that is precious, a sacrifice that is fitting, a sacrifice that will satisfy him. Nothing else will do. And you say, well, okay, but that's nice. I know that's the standard. Do I have to learn it? Verse six, God says everyone in Israel learns it. Everyone in Israel learns it. Why? Because every family would be taking care of this lamb. It would be in their responsibility until the 14th day. Every kid would know the standard. Why? Because every parent's yelling at their kid, don't mess with the lamb. Because if you give it a blemish, we're gonna have to get a new lamb. Every kid knows, precious, perfect. Has to be a sacrifice, has to be fitting, has to please God. They know that cold. So should we. So should we. People wonder, do I need to understand the perfection of Christ? Do I need to understand how perfect and precious Christ is? Do I need to understand God's lofty idea of a sacrifice? And the answer is what? Yes, God said, I made a holiday so my people would learn it because it's that important to me. It's that important to me. The gospel and its truth should be deep in us and that includes sacrifice. And sometimes people think, well, do I really need the cross for, for deliverance? I mean, is this really that important? And God says, yes, I made a holiday so that you would understand this is absolutely essential. You cannot have redemption apart from the cross. Well, it's not just a theology of sacrifice, it's a theology of atonement. Atonement, we see this at the end of verse six into verse seven. End of verse six into verse seven. There is a fancy schmancy word, penal, substitutionary atonement. That entire phrase is the doctrine of atonement. People say penal, substitutionary atonement, that's a mouthful. Do we really have to know it? Well, let's look. In chapter 12, verse 6b, God says, all the congregation of Israel must slaughter the lamb. What does this show you? Everyone in Israel understood atonement, and everyone in Israel needed atonement. There's nothing as a person who says, well, I don't need that. That's not for me. I'm exempt from that. No, everyone needs it. Everyone depends on this. If you don't have this, you're damned, period. And notice, they had to slaughter the lamb. The word is specific and shows a ritual slaughter which shows and demonstrates God's wrath and that he demands death for sin, and there's judgment involved. In other words, penal substitutionary atonement is penal. There's a penalty involved. That's what it's showing there. And furthermore, it's central. How do we know that? Because it is between the evening time. It's at the evening. This is what kickstarts the entire process of redemption. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We know that. It's right here. This is what kickstarts everything. And furthermore, verse seven, when you put the lamb's blood on your doorposts and your lintel and the frame and everything, that is substitution, is it not? It is the lamb's life for your life. It is the lamb died so you don't have to die. That is substitution. What you have right here is the full doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Something has to die because of sin and wrath. And something has to take your place and that is everything, and there are no exceptions to that. Sometimes people say, but penal substitutionary atonement, it's such a long phrase, can I learn it? Every kid in Israel would have learned it. Every kid in Israel could have learned it, because God made a holiday to teach it. He made a holiday to teach it to say, 
You have to learn this. This is essential. And along that line, sometimes people say, well, do we really need to understand the doctrine of atonement? I mean, does, it, does the gospel have to deal with God's sin and wrath? And God says, yes, I made a holiday. It's celebrated every year for like millennia so that you would learn this doctrine matters. You have to have it. And you not only have to have it, you need to know it. You need to know it and love it well. Well, it's not just sacrifice. It's not just a theology of atonement. It's a theology of saving faith. Verses eight through 10, Israel will eat the meal in a very specific way. And that is their response to God's work. And since we're thinking about a response to God's work, well, we are to respond in saving faith. And that is what God is helping Israel to understand. It is for this very reason that in John 6, what does our Lord say? You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. He is explaining how you receive the gospel. He is just reiterating what the Passover always taught. The way you eat of it is the way you're supposed to respond to God's work of deliverance for us. And eating is a powerful metaphor. Because when you eat something, it doesn't just remain outside of you, it becomes inside of you. It's part of you. Saving faith is not just, ah, I know some things out there about the gospel. No, it must be deeply part of you. You depend on it. You want it. You internalize it. And furthermore, you internalize everything. Notice, Israel was to eat three things. The lamb that was roasted. Why? Because it's a sacrifice. You depend on the sacrifice. Unleavened bread. Why? Because that looks forward to deliverance. You are saying, there is no way I will ever be free except through the ultimate lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. And furthermore, they would eat it on bitter herbs. Why bitter herbs? Because those symbolize the bitterness of their past life in Egypt, part of saving faith is to say, I had a sinful life, a life full of sin, and I don't want that life. It is bitter to me. I reject that life, and I want that deliverance, and the only way to have that deliverance is through the lamb. It is through the lamb. That is the nature of saving faith. And it's not just external to me. I know these facts. It is internal. It is everything in my heart of hearts. I depend on this. I love this. I need this, that is saving faith. And furthermore, there's one more component. Verse 10, it says this, that in the morning, all that is left over shall be burned. And you say, well, that's not very green. Why are we doing that? Come on, leftovers, be economical. This is no ordinary meal. This is no ordinary meal. That's why you do it. You know what the gospel has to be in saving faith? It has to be sacred. It has to be sacred. If we just think, yeah, gospel's good, self-help's good, other advice is good, that's good, everything's good, it's just one of many things, then you don't have saving faith in the gospel. The gospel is in a category altogether by itself. It is, if I don't have this, I'm doomed, period. It is sacred to me. And so God, through the Passover ceremony, he teaches about the nature of saving faith. He teaches Israel about the nature of saving faith, and we need to understand that, and we need to live it. But more than anything, the gospel teaches us, or Passover teaches us about God. Israel, as it says in verse 11 and 12, they, are, they have their loins girded, they have their sandals on their feet, they have their staff in their hand, they're ready to go. They are focused, they are poised, they are concentrated, and who are they concentrated on? Verse 12, I will pass through Egypt. 
They are focused on what their God will do. They understand deliverance. They don't do it themselves. Their buddy doesn't deliver them. Moses doesn't deliver them. This is all about one person and one person alone, and that is God himself. He is the driver of salvation, and within this, he is transcendent. Egypt doesn't say, God, you can't pass. You shall not pass. That doesn't happen in this incident. God just goes right through. Why? Because he is transcendent. Furthermore, he judges all of these things. It says in the text, I will judge the people of Egypt. I will judge the animals of Egypt. I will even judge the supposed gods of Egypt. He says that in chapter 12, verse 12. Why? Because God says, I am supreme over all of them. I am supreme over all of them. I have the right to do that because they are wicked and even more. This is how I will fight for my people. No one will hold me back. That is the supremacy of God on display. I am who I am. And so Israel would behold this transcendent God, this God of judgment which demonstrates his perfection and they would also behold his mercy because when God would pass through the people of Israel who had the blood on their doors, they would not die even though they deserved to die. And God then at that moment, he saves them from himself. He's the only one who's judging right now. He saves his people from himself. And with that, Israel understands this is the almighty God. This is the God who fights for us. This is the God who overcomes for us. This is the God who saves us because of his great loving mercy. And Israel then through the Passover, they learn doctrine. They learn the doctrine of sacrifice, atonement, faith, and God himself. And you might think, well, those doctrines, those are for theologians. Those are for pastors and serious Bible nerds. No, they're for you. God said, I made a holiday so that these truths would be deeply ingrained in every one of us here. You wanna know how to make the gospel central? Let it be deep in you. Master the depth of the doctrines of salvation. Having gone through a holiday season, we want to know now, especially in the time of resolutions, how to have a life that focuses and highlights and exalts Christ in the gospel. Well, what better way to learn about that than a holiday, than a holiday itself? And God gives his people a holiday to teach them. You wanna make the gospel central? Well, let it dictate your time. Let it define your relationships and may every single truth of it be deep in you. And the reason for this is because the gospel is so central. The very existence of God's people is predicated on this. This is the moment that defines our lives and defines history and everything then should reorient itself around it and God established a holiday to teach us that very truth. So may we live in a way that puts God and the gospel central this year as he has taught us in his word. Shall we pray? Lord, we are thankful for this time together. We are thankful that your word is so wise and it is so, so deep and insightful. And we need the gospel. It is the difference of life and death. It is, it is what drives all history. It is what reveals your glory. And so, oh God, may we May we be those who live it out the way you desire and not only honoring you then in doing so, but finding out how rich and wonderful and lovely is the work of salvation and the perfect precious Lamb of God in whose name we pray, amen.